1: What phone is
2: that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never get home. They never get home. They never get home, Those Does my wife? That's yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that,
1: really. Well, oh, you can laugh. i the World Cup.
2: I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like
1: me. You well, don't know what you're talking about. Well yeah. if you want to, I like to stay alive for someone right, now, I'd say it to you, but not say it oh, to now. I'm
2: down to Anfield and we'll see them all you. Like what you're doing down here, you're man.
3: Kieran, do you remember the live show that we did in the Sugar Club just before the Premier League season kicked off? Yes. And one of our guests was Niall Quinn. Yes. Former Manchester City player. Yes. And Niall Quinn and myself both picked the same player to be player of the year this season. Do you remember who it was?
4: I'm going to say Kevin De Bruyne.
3: Kevin De Bruyne. Yes.
4: Yeah, Jonathan Pierce was doing something weird with his pronunciation of, like, maybe 40% of the time while saying Kevin De Bruyne's name. Bruyne's. It's
3: just one of those names that's so difficult for us to say because we don't really have that vowel sound in English. Okay. But... It
4: kind of feels to me like that's a bit of a cop-out, Ken, to be honest. It is just a vowel sound. Um, I don't think we can just hold our hands up and say, well, can't do that, I'm not Belgian, so... Uh, yeah, well, look, um, Kevin De Bruyne,
3: but myself and Quinn went from... And, of course, we were both wrong because... Clearly, Harry Kane is going to be the Player of the Year. <laughs> I mean, Harry Kane needs to do about two more weeks of his current form before he has that in the bag.
4: They're voting now, aren't they? For it, uh,
3: <laughs> they do. They do vote a little, a little early. Usually, the key is to be in really good form around Christmas and January. And yeah. and that's really So maybe Harry Kane has is shooting his bolt too early. Just how many bolts has he got left to shoot? Hmm. Is the question. I mean, he's. Um, you know, at his, at his current rate, you'd have to expect he's, he's running out of bolts. But uh, it's it really is phenomenal to see him uh, week after week doing this. But, you know, still Kevin De Bruyne, I've got to say, is pretty good. Mm. You know, I'm satisfied that he's going to be up there on the podium, you know, rubbing shoulders, rubbing elbows with Harry Kane. One yeah. the other.
4: I feel like the, you know, player of the year prediction, I mean, it's a fiendishly uh, tough business. I mean, even in comparison to the who's going to win the league, I mean, I think you can say, you know, you've got a fair idea there. I mean, Kevin DeBornick could, you know, suffer a horrendous injury and then that's you and Noel Quinn looking like idiots.
3: Well, that's what's kept happening to him so far. I mean, he hasn't had any really, really bad injuries. He, he, I think his worst one was uh, in his first season in City, he missed maybe two months, um, but he's not had any really bad ones, but he has had lots of Little ones that have stopped him just when things started looking as though he was he was really kind of getting up to speed. But now, I think that was the biggest game of the season, Chelsea against Manchester City so far. um, I think it was the highest level game of the season, and he settles it with an amazing goal, um, which is uh, yeah, which I suppose showed. um,
4: Sorry, did you actually just start the show there by? complimenting yourself and Niall Quinn for your exceptional footballing knowledge. Well for
3: both getting it wrong on who was gonna be the player of the year.
4: Well, no. I mean you know, you no, you're you're bigging yourself up there.
3: I'm not. I'm saying we both picked the wrong man, but you know, the man that we picked is Nevertheless is doing, doing okay well, for is, himself. Is doing quite well. Um so yeah, we're gonna talk um actually not about that game today. We'll myself and yourself can talk about that, Karen, if you want. Um mm-hmm. we'll talk a little bit about the Problems uh, that Ronald Koeman is having quite early in the season at Everton, who were beaten
4: by Ireland,
3: Ireland uh, at Goodison Park.
4: What a spark. That's probably Ireland's best display of the year so far.
3: <laughs> it really is. It's a. It was. It was absolutely incredible stuff. Uh, we're going to also talk to Kieran Canning, who's in Spain, where they've had a pretty crazy weekend. And Barcelona playing in front of an empty stadium after the league refused to accept their request to have their game called off. Real Madrid fans rubbing it in, rubbing a little bit of salt into the wounds with their display um, at their Sorry, game. Sorry, it's just later. democracy
4: appears to be falling apart. Uh, could we get a you know twenty four hour suspend, uh postponement of this game? No, no, no. We can. It does seem rather odd.
3: It's, it's. I think it's, it's bizarre. I think it's scandalous um, that they couldn't recognise that situation, demanded uh, you know a flexible response, but. Uh, we will talk to Ciarán, uh, who's been in Madrid sort of um, sucking up a bit of their atmosphere. But first of all, World Service members, you get to skip this next bit because you already know about all of this.
2: I'm having a buzz flounder now, anyone wants to not give me a shell? I don't like the name because, you know, I, I actually think he's a very good writer. Mm. But he's it, a daft. This is a dig at football people who know the game using statistics. Uh, to try and undermine people who have eyes, ears, and common sense.
3: What I'm saying is that sometimes the eyes and ears mislead you. The ears, particularly if it's Paul Merson talking, is
2: might mislead you. This was at a dig at football people who know the game. You know the balls and you know, the stones. Have a property, i love to debate him. You could for that all i have the to back it up are facts <laughs> all i have to back it up is the factual record of what to what play bring it on this was a, a dig of football people who know no. the game he's the one who's on the attack don't forget mm. and has been for some time without naming people but he, he mentioned pundits mm-hmm. well who are the
4: football pundits <laughs> <laughs> Oof. Oof. i think they call that on a verbal broadside you've been on the attack end, but you don't have just don't have a taste to name names. You don't have the balls, Ken. Kill the stones. <laughs> don't have the balls.
2: Yeah, I don't want to put them down. But they seem to want to prove that you don't need to know anything about football to write about it. This was at a dig at football people who know the game.
4: You don't have the balls, Ken. You don't have the stones.
3: Yes, if you join up to the World Service, you get to hear all of last week's shows, indeed all our shows today, which included US Murph, the return of an old favourite.
4: Administrator of the Week.
3: The Champions League football show. And an incredibly powerful chat with Jeff Hassel's daughter, Dawn.
2: What was so dreadful is in the last stages of my dad's life, when he couldn't recognise me or my sisters, um, he, was, he would lie in the settee. He, he wouldn't speak. He wouldn't ask for a drink. He wouldn't ask for food. He'd starve to death or die of thirst. And you had to give him a, a drink in a baby beaker because his hands would shake so violently. And yet he was surrounded by everything he'd won in the game. An FA Cup winner's medal, a League Cup winner's medal, England caps, everything football gave my dad, football took away because he remembered none of it.
3: You also get no more of these annoying ads. You get your podcast before everyone else on Monday. You get first call and live show tickets. You get to listen to all upcoming shows, including my political podcast, brand new players chair interviews at Richie Sadler, and all upcoming debates when I find my stones. Plus, if you're not a member, you're missing lots of Murph's bullshit little sayings, too.
4: Quiet priest never got a parish on. <laughs> Good God.
3: So go to secondcaptains.com join for a 5 euro a month and support independent, commercial-free broadcasting.
4: Right, let's report on some sport, Ken. So Gareth Bale is
3: uh, currently arguing with Real Madrid about whether he is going to be allowed Ooh. to join up with
4: Spe- uh, Wales. Interesting. What well, are your? What, how do you read this situation, Ken? Is Gareth Bale going to walk out in his responsibilities? Well, man, no. <laughs> Real
3: Madrid have, have more or less uh, said uh, that they're hoping to persuade Bale not to go. But realistically, I don't think they've got much chance of, of winning that argument with Gareth Bale. I mean, given that their stance is essentially, look, it's not a very serious injury, but then Wales is not a very serious country. So we're hoping that <laughs> Gareth uh, <laughs> recognises his professional responsibilities. Uh, yeah, I think that's...
4: He is annoyingly committed to the international cause, isn't he? Mm. He's Basically, himself and Ryan Giggs are like the two opposite ends of the commitment to the international team spectrum.
3: I know. I mean, it just makes you wonder what might happen if players were just prepared to give more commitment even when it looked as though there wasn't any point. Mm. Giggs is always very rational in his opinion, yeah. in, his, in his in his view. He's kind of like, well, that's obviously a waste of time, so no point in me really pouring my heart and soul into it, given that we're not going to get anywhere. But maybe if he had done. I mean, even if you look at Tottenham now. I mean, I know Gareth Bale wanted to go and play for Real Madrid and three Champions League titles later and you know untold untold millions that he's made.
4: But are you happy? You
3: I mean if he'd stayed at toddler, imagine they had, you know, what they've got. I mean, I, I guess maybe Ericsson certainly was one of the valuable players that they got yeah. when they um, when they sold Bale. But the idea of him being in a team with uh, with Kane, Ericsson Ali and so on, um, Pity for Tottenham, that it that it never worked out, but you know, for Wales, he's always been committed. Not that I think Ireland really need to worry, because based on Burnley, uh, Burnley at Goodison Park, Ireland are in pretty good shape.
4: We might be the forum team in the Premier League slash international uh, sphere at the moment.
3: Well, we've got the Irish Kevin De Bruyne in Robbie Brady mm-hmm. um, lashing a seventy seven year old seventy seven year old. 77-yard pass. Catalan police in your uh,
4: head there.
3: 77-yard <laughs> pass out to Wardy Alba on the left.
4: <laughs> Wardy Alba.
3: Did what? you
4: come up with that yourself or is that a...
3: That's what I'm now calling Stephen Ward. Okay, fine. He's a player who I've um, not always praised in the past for his performances. I mean, I, I still remember him. Maybe the occasion got to him a little bit first game of Euro 2012 against Croatia.
4: Hmm.
3: There were a couple of passes that maybe didn't go where he would have liked them to go.
4: On the other hand, he was being specifically told under no circumstances to do anything other than hoof the ball 50 yards up in the air down your wing.
3: Well, if only he'd done that, maybe Croatia wouldn't have scored their opening goal after just oh. a couple of... Was it was it the first goal, the second you goal?
4: Gotta, you got to let the players express themselves. Okay, Look, all.
3: everybody makes mistakes. Stephen Ward now is, uh, is showing... I mean, he's playing some of his best football I've ever seen this season. He scored a brilliant goal against Chelsea. um, And really clever play to help set up this goal. I mean, first of all, early anticipation of this big pass from Brady. uh, Quite a measured cross, considering that he was kind of at full stretch hitting this difficult ball to hit into the middle. Then got back into an onside position and then made a really intelligent run to open up Everton's defence, which again was was excellent play from Burnley. I mean, if this is a team that's criticised for trying to just stick it in the mixer and, and hope that somebody gets ahead on it, the way that they constructed that goal was actually brilliant. Uh, Hendrick, obviously, uh, was key to that as well. Really composed finish by him. And then, uh, no real response from Everton or, or or Burnley doing what Alan Shearer says they're comfortable with defending. I mean, Everton had 23 shots to burn at least five, four on target to two, though. Everton and Liverpool both winning unexpected goals this week, and yet it just doesn't. Unbelievably, it just doesn't seem to that appease the supporters at all. <laughs> I mean, I do wonder if, if managers are going to start to refer to this because it does. Yeah, I mean, rather than it, surely it would have been better if Jurgen Klopp had done this than what he actually did, mm. which was which was to start getting once a, a Liverpool manager starts getting sarcastic. Then you know the things have started to go pear shaped. You know, mm. even Brendan Rogers, who is, uh, I think, a, a studiously magnanimous man in his dealings with reporters. Mm. You know, unlike some of his predecessors, you know, Rafael Benitez, you know, could, was known to indulge in a bit of sarcasm. Kenny Dalglish, you know, from time to time was known to, um, you know, not conceal his contempt. Mm. For reporters who asked him questions that he didn't like, um, even Rogers occasionally, you know. And now we had Klopp asking some guy—I'm uh, not sure who the reporter was—but uh, a reporter who suggested that it seemed like a fair result. Oh, was it your first time ever watching a football game? That was your first time. That was your first time watching a game. <laughs> you know. So this, <laughs> this is <laughs> this is a long way. Yeah. Can you remember Klopp when he arrived two years ago? Yeah. It's about, it about two years ago. He sort of breezed in.
4: Getting you know, interviewed by the kid. tanned. You know.
3: Yeah, getting interviewed by the kid, tanned, beaming, uh, dazzling smile, looking great. Just saying, you know, we've got to turn from doubters into believers. And now it's oh, so this is the first time you've ever seen a football game. Um, maybe it would have been better just to talk about the expected goals.
4: Mm. I think, mm, I think it's better to just write it out for another six months and let you know Gabriella Marcotti get another few. You know, tongue lashings on ESPN about it, yeah, and and then you know, it's only through martyrs like Gabriele Marcotti that uh, I think it would be Marcotti that will make the ultimate sacrifice on this one, so that eventually managers can point to expected goals when uh, talking about games they really should have won. Yeah,
3: well, I guess some of the fans are maybe doing, are taking up the, uh, taking up the slack, fighting the the P world War mm. on their behalf. You know, fans have started to. To see, well, hang on. We this means this this statistic means we deserve to win that game, it means we deserve to win. Therefore, we played well. Everything is going well. But this, this is really the dilemma for managers like Kuhn and and Klopp, both of whom have got teams which which are are flatlining for reasons which they clearly don't understand. You know, it's like, what is wrong with my team? Why are we not getting what we're what we should be getting out of these games? Why? Um, why do why are we missing simple chances and why do we let in every chance that we give away? Mm. <laughs> these are the the problems that bedevil these two managers at this time. So the question kind of becomes: I mean, if you can't figure out what's actually happening, if is it is it a case of is there something wrong with my system or is it just simply we're being we're unlucky here? I mean, how many times can you be unlucky? So at what point then do you think about should we change what we're doing? Um. And it's particularly a pertinent question, I think, for Klopp at this point, because although they have the international break now, which is probably just as well from their point of view, um, from Liverpool's point of view, uh, the next game is going to be against Manchester United at Anfield, which is going to go a long way to determining what kind of a season both sets of supporters think they're having. Because at the moment, Manchester United are, are a machine. They're riding roughshod over everybody they come up against, um although they haven't played anybody higher than who's currently higher than 12th in the table they've played like you know i think five of the bottom six clubs you know beating everybody heavily apart from Stoke um but there always does remain that question okay you've you're, you're chewing up a lot of easy teams here but how's it going to be in bigger matches because that was a problem last season i mean they didn't really pick up enough points in those matches there was there was a very conservative approach in, in most of the big games and they you know they 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 uh
4: but it kind of doesn't matter though i mean you know red monday a uh, repeat of red monday is absolutely fine for manchester united fans i, I mean you know like any amount of sterile nil all draws uh is probably acceptable as long as they're beating teams 4-0 that are in the bottom half of the of the, of the league table i mean the the whole league ta- the, the whole idea of of uh, deciding cha- uh, champion by virtue of playing 38 games is that more often than not uh, as long as you take care of the teams underneath you, you don't actually need to be, you know, mm. uh, pulling up trees if we're in the games uh, against the teams above you. Yeah, and
3: especially if you are already have the advantage, as they now do, because they've they've made the kind of early start, the, the, they've made the kind of um, impressive start, which has always been a feature of Mourinho's previous title wins. Mm. Um, on each occasion when he's won the league title in England, it's, it's been after a fast start that's seen them right up at the top of the table. And from that position, uh, he's good at managing a team that's that's in the lead. You know, I mean last season we saw a team that was that have you know started badly, thrown away a lot of points en route. And by the last few games of the season he was kind of saying, Hmm, you know, this the, the it's about the Europa League now our season. You know? Yeah. He was cut so that so they finished sixth, they kinda of put her to a halt. I mean, if you recall, they actually beat Chelsea, which was probably their best result against um, a top six team, Uh, I mean, beating the Champions at home. But if you recall that game, there was consternation before the game because the team that he'd chosen was kind of, it looked a bit like uh, he was resting players for the game. And it turned out that in the event, Marcus Rashford played really well. Manchester United won the game anyway. But there was definitely kind of an attitude of, well, this is gone now, so let's not waste any more energy on it, whereas now I think they're in the favourite position of okay, we're, we're the ones in control now I mean obviously Manchester City are up there as well but certainly when it, when it comes to the likes of uh, you know, uh, Jurgen Klopp's team um, a draw a draw I think for, for Jose Mourinho would be, would be a favourable result this time because it would prevent them from making any ground back up I mean what Liverpool have to do now, the question is whether they should change what they're doing and they actually did do that against um, Newcastle by playing Daniel Sturridge, which was an interesting choice. Um, you know, the dilemma is, do you use Daniel Sturridge, who is, who is rated as a really sharp finisher, or do you use Roberto Firmino, who does all the other things that Sturridge doesn't do so well, but doesn't finish very well? What do you... Do you go with the finisher or the worker? Your team can't score goals. What do you, what do, you do?
4: If you take the worker out, that doesn't mean... You know th- that means that doesn't mean you're just replacing him with a finisher. It means that all of the other work that the team does is at a there's a lower percentage of that work actually culminating Happen. in a goal. Yeah,
3: yeah. I, I kind of feel that was probably a mistake. I mean, the, in the end, surge actually did get a chance thanks to another Ireland player, Kieran Clark, who had a uh, Clarke and and Duffy actually both had uneven. The Kind of games you, you, you remind, they you, they remind you that they are mere mortals, uh, after all. Uh, Duffy a couple of times squaring up to uh, Alexi Sanchez. Alexi Sanchez is a tough player, a, t- a tough opponent, one on one. But you know, there were there were, some, <laughs> there were some moments, um, that you hope Shane Duffy takes on board and and maybe learns from. Um, you know, when he uh, at one point, he appeared to... Uh, I know that there's a... He, he's facing up to Alexis Sanchez, who is, as we know, is a right-footed player, although useful enough on the left. Duffy uh, more or less shepherded him into an entire empty half of the Brighton penalty area to have a go on his left foot if he wanted. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was a little bit too much. I think Duffy realized that, which is when he picked up the pace and came sort of rushing across Sanchez, who then cut back onto his right foot. Didn't score from that particular... Chance, but uh, you know it was um, Duffy still maybe acclimatizing mm. a little bit. The Clark one was an, it was an even worse mistake. I mean, he just he he swung his foot at the ball, missed. Sturge was in and missed, and so that's the whole point of him being in the team was to score. And so when you don't score, you're doing nothing. It's goodbye. Mm. Um, it's 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 a strange thing with him. I mean, he he uh, he does play well as substitute, but then when you, when he starts, he's been terrible. So I don't th- I don't expect to see him starting again. I think for a long time, um, but if he's not there, the question then remains: who is going to turn the expected goals into actual hmm. goals?
4: Well, I mean, you know, is are we far away from a revised league table just taking in, taking into account expected goals? Um, you know, I think that's an interesting, at least mathematical. Uh, uh, question for us to wrestle with. Yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully Liverpool top of the expected goals Premier League.
3: Well, I think actually probably Manchester City would be top of that table um, as they are of the the real table. Or you know they've they haven't got the the question mark over their results that there is over Manchester Uniteds, and that they've they've uh, beaten Liverpool and Chelsea uh, already. So they have they have taken on top teams teams who. Beat them last season, and and beating them. Um, what was interesting about this? Well, well, there was a lot of interesting things about it. I mean, it was it was a really, it was a very sort of tactical game. Chelsea, very very defensive. This was this was Chelsea at their most. Uh, th- this was the kind of Chelsea that Jose Mourinho speaks about seeing. This is a super defensive team. A super defensive team. Um, this is the most defensive Chelsea we've seen in in a long time, which was paying a lot of respect to Man City, but not really managing to shut them out very well, because City had 17 17 shots, which is an amazing total for an away team at Stamford Bridge, which sort of shows their dominance. Um, Then Morata got injured for Chelsea, and that was kind of the end of Chelsea. They didn't really put up much... um, or They never looked as though they could score after that. Uh, But what what I felt was interesting was uh, afterwards how... Again, how civilized things were between these uh, managers. I mean, these are these are you know managers who supposedly tussling for dogs fighting over a bone, but actually they're very um, <laughs> uh, complementary of each other. I mean, both teams, both managers praising the other manager's team. Uh, no kind of bad blood. The only the only kind of slightly nasty element is well, nasty is is overstating it. But Conte talking about I don't know what happened with that guy. Bruyne, but you are, we are talking about a complete player. I'm not really sure why my club sold him to to their club. I don't really understand what happened. Um but uh yeah, what a uh, what a player he is. Uh but yeah, it seemed like a very um yeah, generally friendly atmosphere.
4: It, and not to be harpy on uh the point that you were making last week, but uh it maybe was a pretty good example of a team setting up to defend and as a result, not doing themselves that much, that many favors from a defensive point of view. Mm. In that if you just hand a brilliant team the ball, that's not very good defending. Even though it looks like okay, well we're set, we're organised, but we also don't have the ball, well, which in the end will come to hurt you against a really really good team. I mean,
3: I think it it, it might have been different if Murata hadn't got injured. You know, Murata was injured in the first half, and and uh, and then the. The thing that Conte did, which was maybe a bit surprising, was instead of using Batswai, who's who had scored against Atletico, scored the winner against Atletico, uh, which was an amazing result for Chelsea. Instead of putting him on as a straight substitute, he he went for William. Yeah. and it, and if William was kind of replicating to a certain extent what Hazard was doing, there was nobody really to lead the line for Chelsea. And they are, I mean, if you if you Murat did an interesting interview recently. With, uh, with El Pais in Spain during the last international break where he talked about his role in the Chelsea team. And it was really, really, um, it's a very tightly defined role that he has. You know, it's not a case of, you know, I'm kind of a free spirit. Uh, Antonio just tells me to go out there and express myself and have fun. It's not like that. He knows exactly what he's got to do all the time. I mean, he's, he's there... Leading line, every pass that he plays goes back to somebody behind him. I mean, if you his statistics this season show his he he basically never plays the ball forward. It's always he's a hold up guy. Mm. He's he's the the player who gets to the ball when Chelsea play it forward and knocks it back to somebody who's arriving in support. And William is not like that. You know, William is is one of the guys who's arriving from behind. Hazard isn't like that either. So essentially, Chelsea didn't have, they couldn't play according to their usual structure. And also they were missing David Luiz, who's suspended because, you know, he he, he got sent off uh, recently. So two big players missing. If they'd had those players, maybe they would have been able to make a better job with their usual system. They didn't. I mean, City were missing players as well. Mendy and Aguero both got, you know, seriously injured during the week in varying circumstances. Um, so it looked as though it was it was a really bad week for City. Turns out they get their best result of the season so far.
4: Yeah, and uh, they are bloody good as well. City. They're, they're
3: they're they're excellent. I mean they they have got the it best. It seems like
4: they don't get a, a massive amount of credit. Well, it's because everybody can see that they've.
3: Uh, it's because I mean they spent more money on fullbacks. You know than most teams can spend on their team. So there is an element of well you know
4: want you'd want you'd
3: want to be is you'd want to be this good you know you've got all the sort of superstars you have got the superstar manager but that is a fact i mean uh, you know he i think they they are the best team i mean i think last season maybe manchester united had the best squad in the league uh and i think city have the best squad this time uh although it's it's a, it's a close thing i suppose um it's a close thing but i think city are playing the more convincing football at the moment we still have to wait and see what happens when they play each other um Just uh, on the subject of... Or or one man who maybe links those two guys, uh, Mourinho and Guardiola, is Carlo Ancelotti. It it appears to me now that Carlo Ancelotti, uh, a man who uh, has always got a lot of credit for his interpersonal skills and his ability to pour oil on troubled waters, is better off in the future taking over clubs that have recently been managed by Jose Mourinho than ones that have been managed by Pep Guardiola. It turns out that after Guardiola if uh, after Mourinho, Ancelotti comes in and it's like, hey, suddenly there's a smile back on everyone's face. You know, Mourinho's into that confrontational leadership, you know, challenging people. Mkhitaryan, you know, what's the point of view? Martial, what's the point of view? Uh, And, you know, these guys have been sort of poked and prodded and challenged, let's say, to produce the kind of much improved form that we're seeing from them now. But it is, it is an approach that, creates a few puts he puts a few noises noses mm. out a joint. You know? Yeah. He, he he makes no secret of it. When confrontational leadership is, is literally w- what he calls the brand. You know, you have to you have to challenge people, you have to provoke performances out of people.
4: Can't make an omelet can. Yeah, Isn't I mean
3: he, without without humiliating a few fringe players. Yeah. Now
4: this, having a pop at Luke Shaw.
3: So that that is his uh, that's his approach. Guardiola has a t- totally different approach. Non-confrontational uh Avoid, in fact, avoiding confrontation, even when the players tried to bring it to him, mm. such as you know, knock, knock, boss, what, why, why don't you pick me, why don't you play me, you know.
4: Never mind that. Let's have a cigar.
3: <laughs> no, he, did, but he doesn't. He like, I, I mean, is that is that obviously sought him out to to call him and say, you know, this is a, this is a disgrace. Everyone here is a schoolboy. Why? Um, and Guardiola was just completely avoidant of that. I mean, Mourinho would have taken him on. Mourinho would have would have insulted him. I mean, remember the Ozil, Mesut Ozil's description of when he tried to give Mourinho some back chat and was told to, you know, go take a shower, go and cry in the shower and put some nice conditioner in your nice hair, you know, because we don't need you. Uh, Whereas Guardiola was what you know, would not do that type of thing. Uh, He focuses more on the where Where should you stand on the field? What should you do with the ball when you get the ball? The football stuff, the football side of things. That's what he's really into and asking a lot of players in training sessions, asking a lot of concentration from them about the ball, uh, thinking a lot about the game, and you know, mentally very demanding, somewhat exhausting. Some of the Bayern players were saying they were looking forward to seeing what it would be like working for a different coach. It turns out Ancelotti's the wrong coach. He would be much better off coming into a dressing room where everybody's kind of feeling a little emotionally bruised. You know, people... Uh, People, the, a few people have been called rats. There's, there's, there's recently been a rat hunt, you know? <laughs> and then saying, hey, guys, you know, Ragazzi, we're all in this together. Let's remember it's all cool. And then just continuing, rather than trying to take over from this um, space-age type of mm. football that is trying to... Because it turns out, I mean, according to Kicker, the football magazine in Germany, um, the Bayern players were organizing secret training sessions without Ancelotti. <laughs> So where, would,
4: could, like, where was it? Like at the local Astrid, Astrid Earth, like
3: I don't know. I don't know. But it's, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Robin, who appears to have been, I mean, Robin, we mentioned last week, you know, wasn't prepared to stick up for Ancelotti when he was asked about him after they lost to PSG. He said, look, um, he's quoted by Kicker as saying that his eight-year-old son gets better training sessions at the 1860 Munich youth team where he is than he had under Carlo. At uh, at Bayern, this is this. It is alleged by Kicker, is is something that Aaron uh, Robin's been saying. Apparently, uh, Ancelotti's fitness trainer was like smoking in the in the dressing room, which which again, I mean, Ancelotti's fitness trainer smokes. I'm not surprised to hear that. Is it a big deal? It wouldn't have been at a lot of the other places Carlo has been. At Bayern Munich, yes, big deal. People don't like that. Um, so it's just it's just an amazing uh, trashing, actually, of of Carlo's credentials. This hasn't happened to him before in his career. Um, from a team that seems very, uh, you know, uh, suddenly directionless. You know, after after this very intense regime uh, that they had under Guardiola went, they sort of seem to have got addicted to this high-intensity stuff and can't reaccustom themselves to <laughs> something a bit more, mm. you know, normal. It, uh, as 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 Ancelotti uh, might see it. Um but yeah, there you go. Maybe maybe don't take over from Pep again. Uh maybe leave a, a manager in there. But the other thing we're we're going to speak to and we are going to speak to Kieran Canning about this is what was happening in Spain. Obviously incredible scenes all day from uh from Barcelona from elsewhere in Catalonia as the police tried to stop this vote that was being organized um uh, the the independence vote that was happening in Catalonia and and the police response was unbelievably heavy handed I mean there's footage of them battering old women on the street which I mean it's just it's, it's astonishing yeah, it was to extraordinary think, to watch it yesterday what are you doing you know and, and we we I mean Barcelona played in front of an empty stadium um, because they wouldn't let them call off the game we get Kieran's view and what and why that happened it was it was quite weird to be able to, to watch a Barcelona game and hear them all shouting to each other um seeing Luis Suarez incredibly angry almost crying at the end as he tries to get his his clearly badly injured frame to obey his what he wants it to do um he looks to be in serious trouble as i mean he can't he can barely he's dragging his right leg mm. um and yet still played well he played until the end until he actually walked off a minute before the end of the game uh, having torn his shirt off uh, in frustration at missing a chance in injury time, he ripped his shirt like the Incredible Hulk. Then realised I don't have a shirt now, and I can't go back in the field. Um, so a bit of frustration from him. But, but we've also got just a short clip of Jared P. K. He's not speaking English here, but you can hear his emotional state.
2: No, yo ningún acto de de agresión, y, y han tenido que venir la policía nacional y la civil para para pues. Eh,
3: uh,
1: forma actuado,
3: no? uh, yeah, so you could hear jr pk was crying there um he obviously is, is deeply affected by what's been going on there i mean what he was saying um you know this has been my, one of my worst experiences uh, the president of this government the spanish government that is mariano rajoy the spanish prime minister goes around the world without even knowing how to speak english that's his level I thought they would try to stop the vote in a peaceful way. Everyone has seen it. They've made things worse. It's one of the worst decisions by Spain in 50 years. They've separated Catalonia and Spain more. There will be consequences. Um, You know, he says, I'm proud of the Catalan people, their behavior. There was no aggression, uh, but the police and Guardia Civil have come here to act as they have. the Partido Popular, which is the ruling party in Spain, have made the people of Spain believe the Catalans are the bad guys, but it's not like that. We just want to vote. And then he talked about the Spanish national team. He's a World Cup winner uh, and European Championship winner with Spain. Um, He says something quite interesting here, I think. He says, going to the national team is not a patriotic thing. You go there to perform at your best. You go there to try and win. So a lot of us, I think, probably still think that international footballers are kind of... You know, mm. and some of them are. To be fair, some of them are saying, "Oh, to play for my country." That's the thing. Pique is saying that to him. It's never really been about that. It's about this is the best team. This is the this is the best international team, um, and I want to go there and show what a good player I am, and rather than win World Cups as opposed to exactly your country. Right. But but you know, if the Spain coach or anyone in the federation believes that I'm a problem, I will step aside and quit the national team before 2018. So um, that's. Uh, Pretty dramatic stuff from him. I guess we can hear a little bit more about this story with uh, Kieran Cunning in just a moment.
2: What you? What are you saying? You're just a phony, man. This is just for acting. I admit I don't look like the athlete of the day. Supposed to look. This ain't wrestling. This ain't the WWE, baby. My belly's just a little big. My hand is just a little big. This is just an act that you're doing. You should be an actor. But brother, I am bad and they know I'm bad.
0: I'll never do that. There
2: were two bad people. One was John Wayne and he's East brother, and the other was ready You can, you can around like you a preacher and all that you want, but baby, I promise you, I will baptize you. Oh.
0: Oh. Oh. Can't
3: teach that. Kieran, just wonder first of all, I know you were at the Madrid game last night, but the Barcelona game obviously took place behind closed doors. A weird spectacle. Um I wonder what you made of the decision. Of the league, not to allow Barcelona to postpone the game, and then Barcelona's decision, rather than play the game with a with a with a full stadium and an angry crowd, to play it in front of empty stands.
0: Yeah, so Barcelona were caught in pretty awkward situation yesterday. Uh, as you say, La Liga refused the request to to cancel the game, which, although from outside Spain, might have seemed like the logical decision, it was very much the expected thing uh, in Spain because. Javier Tebas, the uh, president of La Liga, has been very outspoken um, in his remarks over the past few years against Catalan independence. He's the one that's threatened uh, that, that Barcelona will be able to continue in La Liga um, in, the, in the case that, that, that Catalonia does manage to, get, uh, manage to get independence. So I think it was kind of expected that La Liga were going to refuse the request. Although it has to be said that La Liga did say that they they may have agreed to cancel the game if the security the services um, and the police there had said that it was it was too insecure that it was impossible for the game to go ahead. Which comes to the Barcelona decision. Um, Barcelona claimed after the match that, um, or after they'd taken the decision just before the uh, the match kicked off, that they were doing they were playing the game behind closed doors as a protest um, to what had happened in Catalonia throughout the day rather than on security grounds. However, um, whilst it was still up in the air uh, in terms of what Barcelona were going to do, there was um, certain Barcelona fans groups that threatened to um, do a, a peaceful pitch invasion as they saw it to, to sort of disrupt the game, not in a violent way, but um, to sort of make their point against, um, against what was happening. Um, And and Barcelona basically went ahead with the game because they feared the the sporting sanctions that if they unilaterally decided not to play the game, they would have forfeited yesterday's game in the three points and would have um, probably got an extra three point point deduction on top of that. So it seemed to be that the club was very much divided on what to do. Certain members of the board, two two board members, have actually resigned because they didn't think it was the right thing to go ahead and, and play the match. Um, and they were kind of stuck between doing what they they thought was right on a sort of uh, institutional symbolic level and the sports side that if they cancelled the match they could they could lose six points.
3: Yeah, I mean, what's what's your own feeling on that? I saw that Juan Laporte, the former president, um, was was critical of the decision and said, you know, no way should we have gone along with this, and gave the impression that if he'd been president, Barcelona would not have been playing that game. Which of course is easy for him to say as somebody who isn't actually involved, it's kind of easy for him to say, well, I would have done this, I would have done that. But I kind of feel as though maybe the the Barcelona board, maybe this is another um, miscalculation by the president, Bartomeu, who obviously is is very unpopular. Uh, He always seems to make the wrong call. And given what was happening in in the city and how huge this issue had become, um, simply to go out there and obediently, Play. I mean, the idea that this was a protest is is, is even more curious. I mean, I can't imagine that, the, that, the, that whatever protest they're making by playing in an empty stadium is as powerful as whatever the fans would have been able to say if they'd been allowed in.
0: So, yeah, I tend to agree with the, your point there and the fact that it's, it was seen as a, as a protest. I think it was quite clear that they, they feared the fact that if there, there was fans in the stadium, there could have been a pitch invasion and, the, and all the sporting sanctions. That that come with that, because otherwise you're only really penalising your own fans by by locking them out. I mean, they didn't take a final decision um, on on to play the game behind closed doors until less than half an hour before the game kicked off. So you had thousands of fans waiting outside, you know, some of them for hours, um, only to be eventually turned away. As to whether Barcelona made the right decision or not. Um, I've been very critical of Bartomeu and, and other things. I think on this issue, though, it's a very difficult one for Barcelona because they constantly have to to walk a, a fine line between their Catalan base and and their, their fans and, and the rest of Spain. And even within that Catalan base, I think that sometimes from outside Spain, it can give the impression can be given that you know there's a, a resounding majority in favour of Catalan independence. And at least until yesterday. That wasn't really the case, and most polls give it more or less about 50-50 or or slightly one way or the other. So even within that that Catalan support, there isn't an an overwhelming um, support for for Catalan independence, and that's why the club um, has always positioned itself um, that there should be a right to self-determination, that there should be a referendum and a binding referendum, but that they haven't come out openly in favour or against independence. What
3: about in Madrid, Kieran, where you were last night, Real Madrid were playing uh, and I saw some footage of, um, you know, they're, they're chanting Viva España and, and it was just a sea of Spanish flags. In the 12th minute, I'm not sure if there's some particular significance to the, to the 12th minute there, but it certainly seemed like, um, you know, Spanish fiesta night at the Bernabeu, as though the crowd had come to support Real Madrid wanted to uh, make their feelings known on the, on the whole Catalan issue.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the club actually facilitated this because on the on the seats, there was sort of um, placards with a Spanish flag on it and they were told to hold up in the 12th minute. There was no, as far as I'm aware at least, there was no there's no historical uh, meaning in the 12th minute. It was just on the placard that said that the fans were the 12th man, you know, and this and this is why uh, they told up the, the Spanish flags. But yeah, there were certainly, I mean, <clears throat> Viva España is not something that's that commonly sung at the Bernabéu, and you know, it was a, there was there were three or four renditions of it last night, and there were far more Spanish flags than than you would get at a normal Real Madrid match. Now, <clears throat> part of that may be also that um, the Madrid were playing Espanyol, which is a, also a team from from Barcelona, albeit one that that tends to to politicise itself even even less. Um, but certainly, I mean, obviously, it's been the dominant topic in Spain for for weeks now, and especially yesterday um and you saw protests across across madrid some for example in, in the centre of madrid and and sol uh, square coming out to sort of defend <coughs> the, the the people of catalonia against the police brutality but you also saw plenty of demonstrations you know pro pro Spain or pro Spanish uh, the unity of for the unity of Spain um demonstrations and that was certainly the case at, at the bernabeu last night
3: yeah, I mean, I wondered when when you saw that crowd around Madrid and, you know, some of the crowds, as you've you've mentioned that there have been different demonstrations in Madrid. I mean, I've seen, you know, both people festooned with with Spanish regalia and then people protesting against the police brutality. So it's, not, it's more complicated than simply, you know, Madrid against Barcelona. So these are two opposing cities. It's much more complicated than that. That's not really the type of city that Madrid is. But there were plenty of people clearly at the Bernabeu who... Who you could see we're were on one side of this, which is to say the anti Catalan separatist, maybe the maybe even in the circumstances of yesterday, the pro police side. And I wondered if you, if when you see so many people, you know, waving those flags and singing that song, if if that if that kind of explains some of the logic of what the Spanish police have been doing in Catalonia, because it seems insane. You know, watching it from outside, it's, it's, it's like, what are, they, what are they doing? This is the craziest thing they could do. I mean, everybody can see, when you're, when you're beating up old women on the street, it, you know, this is, not, uh, this is not really a very good look for the Spanish state, but when you saw that, you know, there's certainly some enthusiasm in, in other parts of Spain to see uh, the Catalans crack down on, and maybe the government was um, maybe part of why they, they had such a repressive response was to appeal to these people.
0: Well, I think it's clearly been a PR... I mean, it's much more serious than a PR disaster, but it clearly, to the outside world, it's been a, a PR disaster for the Spanish government. I mean, they, they could easily have um, sat back and, and said that this referendum is clearly not binding. It's, it's, Again, their defence has always been that it's against the Spanish constitution and it's, and it's illegal. Um, and that, I mean, I think, to a certain extent... What you're saying is right, and that the the, the in, until yesterday, um, and I think this is this is where the, where it has been such a, a catastrophic error on the part of the Spanish government and and the police. Until yesterday, the vast the, the vast majority of the opinion within Spain, outside of Catalonia, was very much that what the Catalan uh, separatist forces or separatist politicians are doing is illegal. That the the, the charges should be brought against them as they were. Um, there was 14 arrests against Catalan regional uh, government officials last week I think yesterday has now been a, a turning point in that because the way that the, the police waded in um, has has swung opinion heavily uh, against what, what the Spanish the, the, the interpretation being that the police did this very much under the orders of the Spanish government um, has swung very much against the government um, and now it's you know an even even more complex issue than before because obviously uh, the pro-separatist uh, politicians in, in Catalonia are declaring victory, but clearly this wasn't a, a properly carried out referendum. Not just because it was suppressed by the Spanish government, but also the reports of people not having to show their their um, ID when voting and voting multiple times, so it's obvious that and it has been obvious for weeks that the only way for this to, to move forward is is for politicians to get round the the table and discuss and, and agree things and and very much that's the the mood today that for all the the shocking scenes and the, the and I think people are very much embarrassed by the the image of Spain that went out to, to the world yesterday. They're saying that you know that Spain doesn't deserve the politicians that it has, um, and are really sort of, along with the police, obviously, really um, putting the blame on on politicians on both sides for not getting around the table and discussing this. You know, in the past few weeks and months.
3: Just Kieran, anyone listening to your voice can hear the granite tones of uh, Barney Scotland, which which was which was the last uh, European country to go through the the process that Catalonia wants to go through. Uh, or a lot of people in Catalonia once to go through, you know, an independence referendum. I mean, this happened quite recently in Scotland. You're now seeing this uh, something a bit like it happen in Spain. I mean, what, you know, what are your what are your what are your feelings on on that? Do you see uh, parallels between the two and how your own attitude to, to Scottish independence developed, and what you think is likely to happen in Spain now?
0: well from what the, the one clear lesson I, I think i can see is that in the process of the campaign for Scotland, both sides in the scottish independence referendum there was a clear swing towards the yes vote um, for independence um because of the campaign and even though it ended up 55 45 against i think that result was much closer in the end than than most people thought it was going to be until the final the final few weeks of the referendum when the polls really really started to get close and I think what you, the lesson you can take from that is that this is why it's been. I go back to saying it's been such a like a, a catastrophic, you know, remarkable not just not just PR error, but you know, error on, on behalf of, um, of the Spanish government and the police. That if if you were on the fence between voting yes or no for independence yesterday, if you were Catalan watching that, what are you going to think today and going going forward? You know, you're going to be pushed far more towards the side of voting for independence. And I think that. If one day we do get to the stage where for Catalonia does get independence, yesterday will be seen as you know, a, a very, very important point in, in that road. Whereas, where it is different is obviously I think that as, as a Scotty, you do kind of have to think that for all that we might not um times I agree with uh, the political process in, in Britain and the division of powers between Holyrood and Westminster, at least Scotland had its opportunity, the, the, the referendum was conceded, it was a binding referendum, Scotland voted to stay part of the United Kingdom and, and whether you like it or not, whether you voted for it or not, you have to kind of accept that and move on and at least be grateful for the fact that Scotland's had that democratic opportunity, which at the moment, Catalonia hasn't had.
3: Kieran, that's brilliant. Thanks for being in.
0: No problem. Thanks, guys. So
3: he's almost like having a second captain, isn't he?
0: Camp, first camp and whatever.
4: Richie Sadler is here, Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the <laughs> fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know,
2: what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. You know? It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important.
3: Yeah, I mean, just the the whole thing about Catalan independence has never really managed to capture the imagination, I think, in too many places outside Catalonia. I mean, you see, there there was obviously, for instance, you know, the SNP sending support and sort of movements around the world where they can see parallels with their own situation, Mm -hmm. whether or not there there are real parallels beyond, you know, a, a set of people that, Wants to be independent from another set of people. I don't know how much else the situation between Scotland and Catalonia has in common. I don't mm. think. I don't really think it's a lot. Actually, I think one of the main reasons for it is that Catalonia is. is <sighs> Catalonia does not seem like an oppressed region. Mm. I mean, if you've ever been there, yeah, 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 it's a rich. It's a rich. You made a point. Uh, you,
4: yeah, you made a point in your Irish Times piece this morning about uh, it. Basically, that Catalans are richer than the Spanish average. And so this is not, you know, oppressed uh, people, you know, the smaller nations of the world, uh, an oppressed nation trying to uh, secede. It's actually uh, rich people uh, deciding that they don't want to fund the less well-off regions of Spain. I mean, that's an unfair way of of categorizing it, but that's why uh, uh, Catalan independence hasn't been very popular in Spain. It's because... They're actually richer than the national average.
3: Yeah, I mean, and they and they do talk about that in their slogans. I mean, you can see that they, they talk about they rob us sixty million a day, which sounded immediately. It sounds obviously like the three hundred fifty million a week um, Brexit slogan, but they, they this idea they they rob us um, seems to be quite basic to why I mean it's it's obviously more complicated the Catalans say well we pay in all this money and where where is the investment coming back from the central government why why do we get penalized when things go uh when things go down uh, hill as they did in Spain and everywhere in Europe over the last 10 years why are why do we suffer more than other regions we're paying in more but suddenly when uh, the you know the government's accounts are um banjaxed, the level of investment in into catalonia drops much faster than into other parts of spain you know so we're getting we are getting robbed that's mm. their attitude but of course uh, a bunch of rich people who say they're being robbed is not a romantic cause you know it's, mm. it's 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 not something that's likely to to really draw lots of people from around the world to say you know thinking of you catalonia on the other hand police the heavily armed uh, police beating did up people did there on the work street. for them on the
4: PR front and again as uh Kieran said it's much more important than a PR event but hmm. i mean the images stay with you a lot longer than any economic ar- argument
3: i mean if you you know again it's hard to think of catalonia as being part of a of an oppressed region under the you know iron heel of a repressive government until you actually see that happening before your eyes and uh i guess that's a cause which has probably won a lot of or at least a lot of sympathy over the last 24 hours. Um, but where are we? Oh, yes, it's time to get back to talking a little bit about uh, the Premier League, and we're joined by Simon Hughes, who was at Goodison to see Everton lose to Burnley in front of what became a fairly mutinous crowd. I think at Goodison, Simon, it seems as though um, already at a very early stage in the season, things are beginning to boil up uh, badly against Ronald Koeman. What do you think is going wrong for him?
1: Yeah, uh well at the half time at the end of the game, um or sorry, and the end of the game there was there was loud loud booze. Um, you know, during the actual game itself, yeah, the atmosphere was reasonably positive. I mean I don't d I don't think Everton, I've seen Everton play a lot worse. Um you know, there was there was spirit in the team, I thought, but um, you know, when when you fall behind to Burnley it's a it can be quite a difficult place to be particularly when you're on a on a losing streak um but yeah it, i think since the summer i think you know it it is partly a consequence of you know the the raised expectations of the club after the the positive uh you know spending strategy that they had at, at the beginning of the summer i mean I, I can i can see why you know the, the frustration is there because you know have not really playing with Typical Everton style, and they haven't done for quite a long time, really. I mean, I, th- I think Ronald Koeman last season was saved by a decent second half of the season when when he introduced Tom Davis into the side, um, who, who, who you know used to shine and light of the season, really. And then I, f- I found it quite puzzling his use of Davis over the last couple of months because they, they refused to send him to the Under-20 World Cup, so he missed out on that experience, and I kind of thought that that would, that would be with a view to. To put him in the team um, on a regular basis, and since then they've obviously signed a lot of players to play in his position. So it seems all a bit confused. The strategy, um, I don't think what the fans see on the pitch they necessarily identify with. It's not just the results; it's I think the style of football as well. So th- there is a lot to be concerned about. But I've just obviously seen Fahad Mashiri's He's done an interview um, late last night saying that the, the, he's got given Cumin his, his full support now. Now what that means, we're not too sure because we're still finding out about Mashiri, um how he operates, I think it is his kind of reputation still shrouded in mystery um so yeah, it could be a, an interesting couple of months ahead,
3: yeah, I mean if Mashir is saying that, then Everton, uh, then Kuman is probably good for you know maybe three more defeats uh, before he gets sacked i mean what, what do you think of the actual team that he's trying to build? I mean, they bought quite a few players over the summer, but maybe they bought some similar sort of players, g- guys who were good in at attacking midfield, not the paciest, but guys who were good at picking out a pass. How does Kuhn put all these players together in the field? What is the basic structure of the side that, you know, his Everton side looks like in his dreams?
1: Yeah, yeah well, it, it, at the moment, it looks like a deeply flawed team. Um you know, I suppose the goalkeeper, the, the new signing of Jordan Pickford, has been the, the singular positive of the season so far. So far, even though he hasn't been outstanding, you can see that he's an improvement on what was there before. Um, you know, the, the, the problems you've got, I think, it stems from the centre forward position because uh, the, the, there isn't really much to aim towards. I mean, it's strange that we're having a, the same conversation about Wayne Rooney that we had maybe 12 years ago when he was a. A teenager, Cumin doesn't seem to really understand where his best position is, um, you know. And it's been long accepted that Rooney can't play up front by himself, so he's never going to be a direct replacement for Lukaku. Um, you know, there's there's a lack of width in the Everton team. There's a lack of pace, you know. Uh, coupled with the the, I mean, one oversight I think is is, is um, obviously not dealing with Seamus Coleman's absence because he does give the team width and pace from from full back. And you know it was known that he he wasn't going to be around for at least the first half of the season. Cooman's response to that has been to sign Cuco Martina who's just not you know he's just not off the level really. If we're being honest, um, you know he, he looks out of his depth. So there's no width in the team from any area of the pitch. You know they're, they're making mistakes at the back as well. Um, I think individually the signings that they made last summer were, were, were pretty good ones. But as, as you said, they've kind of saturated an area of the park where they, they, they're pretty healthy already. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot to sort out, really. I mean, it, it was puzzling on Thursday night why, you know, there's no width in the team. Uh, this is Thursday night against Apollo Limassol, and, and on the bench they had, you know, three wingers. So, again, I can't really understand that thinking. Um, you know, Nico Vlasic looks like a, quite a good sign, and he's you know he got that kind of thrust in his game, but, you know, to be expecting him to, to kind of provide all the answers after a month of, you know, signing from Hadjuk Split, I think is a bit much. So, so, yeah, I mean, I think um, I think there's a lot of work
3: to do there. There, there is generally sort of a bit of um, discontent uh, on Merseyside mm-hmm. at the moment with the two Premier League clubs. Um, mm-hmm. In Koeman's case, do you think he's maybe entitled to a bit more patience from the supporters? I mean, do you think that he's done enough since he's taken over there, mm-hmm. um, such that when he does hit a... A kind of a hit the skids to an extent that people should say, look, you know, maybe the team's been unlucky, maybe it's taken time to get together, maybe we should continue supporting uh, the manager rather than <laughs> rather than demanding a replacement after what is it, seven Premier League games?
1: I think I think the biggest problem with Cumin is that he was always kind of viewed as, you know, from the very beginning as as a short-term manager. Really, he might do two or three seasons and then move on. So. I think maybe the goodwill towards him, you know, is 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 less as a consequence of that because it was never really felt like you know, for him, that Everton would be a even a medium term destination. Whatever, whatever constitutes longer, medium term in football, now I'm not really sure what that is. But um, you know, last season, if you assess last season as a whole, it was quite a disappointing season, really for Everton. I mean, up until Christmas, it was. I was at most of the games of goodison, and it was pretty depressing, really, um, the football. And as I alluded to before, that that was rescued somewhat after they got knocked out of the FA Cup. They were miles away in the league by the introduction of, of some young players. Now those young players have kind of been taken out of the team again. Um, I mean, there are mitigating circumstances. They did have a really tough start to the season. You know, there couldn't have been any tougher. When I saw the fixture list, I thought, Oof, you know, if, if, he, if he doesn't, if he doesn't pick up at least one or two wins from that, you know, the pressure is going to mount. Now he hasn't been able to pick up anything. He's been hammered, you know, in in, in, um, in a couple of the fixtures and in Europe as well. That's another concern. I mean, it might not seem to matter, um, you know, the, the the Europa League, but I think it does, you know, to Evertonians because you know Everton haven't won a trophy in in such a long time. So when when there's a trophy there, you know, to to, to have a go at and and to to lose so heavily to Atlanta Atlanta and then to to perform so poorly at home to to you know um, uh, you know the third best team in Cyprus essentially um you know that that adds to the concern so i can't understand why Evertonians are feeling this way um about the team at the moment because um because yeah i just, I just think that you could have expected a little bit more um particularly you know having sold Lukaku and not sourced uh, a replacement at all, really. Um, I mean, Sandro Ramirez is, at the moment is looking like a £5 million signing, to be honest. Um, so, I, I think I think Steve Walsh has got to take some responsibility for this as well. Um, you know, he's in charge of the recruitment. Um, but again, you know, this is where responsibility is in, in football now. And it's, it's similar to Liverpool as well. You're right, I think, what you said at the beginning there, that um, you know, the recruitment at both Merseyside clubs have been, has been flawed, uh, flawed if not poor, uh, this summer. And, and now we're, we're seeing that. Is it really a surprise that Everton are in this position? Is it really a surprise that Liverpool um, aren't picking up points in, in certain games? I don't think it is, really.
3: Um, one of the pleasing things about this game from an Irish point of view is how well some of the Irish international players were combining and they, they kind of... Uh, uh, were seventy five percent of the opening goal uh, between Brady Ward and, uh, and Hendrick. They all seem to be doing quite well ahead of the international break, which is good for Ireland. But you, you I mean, when you were writing about the game, you mentioned that you know Burnley were good. Uh, I mean, they, they've already drawn away to to Liverpool. They've beaten Chelsea away. Um, so they've they've got their away form uh, sort of, which was a big problem for them last season. You talked about Sean Dyche, who also was one of the people that you met in your in your book um, on the brink, as being a kind of a coach that Everton really should seriously consider if they were thinking about replacing Ron Koeman. The only question would have to be, based on what we've seen from Burnley so far, why would he leave Burnley? It seems as though he's got a team that's coming together quite nicely there, and um, and uh, whereas at Everton he might be stepping into a bit of a mess.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it depends when it happens as well, does it? I mean, I, I still think Cooman I think Koeman will will have another month, you know, to to at least you know to to sort things out. Um, I mean, I, I just think Sean Dyche is is, is pragmatic and, and will recognise, you know, that Everton's a, a far bigger job than the Burnley one if that was if that was to become a possibility. Um, I mean, I think for Evertonians, identity is very important, you know, in terms of the style of football. And a lot of football fans are, I think, in denial, really, at the moment, about what, what they want to see from the team, whereas they just want to see, you know, organisation, um, you know, some aggression, uh, some spirit, some speculation in the football, you know, in terms of they don't mind putting the ball in the box and uh, and seeing what happens. And, and barely do, you know, do that, a bit of that. But I, I do think that has kind of being... Um, Pigeonholed as this as this type of one way manager. Now, if he were to go to a club the size of Everton, you know, he'd, he'd be moving a, a position at a Burnley, moving from a position at Burnley where he's expected really to lose every week. Um, you know, so the, it's not the, the biggest pressure job in the country, where you know every single you know part of your where in your daily work is, is scrutinized he will be moving to Everton where it, 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 there is a, a great deal more pressure and the, probably more expectation to win the majority of games. So I think that would be the biggest shift uh, for him to deal with. And he is quite defensive about, you know, the, the 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 reputation that he has and the style of football that he wants to play. I just think he should embrace it a little bit more, really, rather than kind of being so defensive about it um, I mean he, he did mention it yesterday that the goal he just spoke about there involving the, the Irish players you know it was a brilliant brilliant team goal um, and it, it does suggest that Burnley can, can do that um, but ultimately he's not working with the calibre of player that that uh, on a regular basis is going to do that, particularly against you know the, the better team. So you know it is horses for courses to some extent. Um, I just think he's done a great job at Burnley overall. You know to to, to go to get relegated, uh, sorry, to take them up on the, one of the lowest budgets in the championship to get relegated and then bounce straight back up as as champions. I think that says an awful lot about his character. You know you, you see it. We've seen it happen before. Could go up in. Um, in, in unforeseen circumstances, and then they go back down. You, you, you don't see the manager again. You don't see the club bounce back up. And he, he came back up as champions again on, a, on a, a relatively low budget, although they did have some money to spend the second time round. And then obviously keep Burnley in the Premier League and you know improving the squad. I think that the team's a much better team than it was two or three years ago. I thought Stephen De was outstanding in midfield yesterday, um, and, and the three Irish players he just mentioned there were excellent as well. And you know he's, he's got a good Good team there, with with better individuals than he had in the past. Um, whether he, did, you know, whether whether he had the Everton job would would shoot him down to the ground, I, th- I think it's it, it's a, a big step up. But you know, it's that type of opportunity that I'm sure he'd be looking for.
3: Simon, that's brilliant. Thanks, man.
1: Yep. Cheers. Cheers, Cam.
2: that might be you know aiming for utopia but that is the way i am i'm a little bit stupid regarding this type of thing i'm a little bit of an idealist but having said that i want to be like me
4: it's Oh, Richie, God. how are we feeding this morning? I just watched the goal set to the Titanic music and it really works, Oh, It really, really works. I think this is the most fun we're ever going to have in a podcast.
3: I don't want to get into a water world I
4: don't want to get in a water which It's good, isn't it? <laughs> There's
3: a you might remember Alan Ferns. Did you oh, I remember some? Alan yeah, Ferns, yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah. 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 Me and yeah. Alan Ferns had a fight once in the, in the Guinness uh, Super <laughs> <laughs> Bowl dressing room. Oh, I'm Street
2: there. Fraser and Ali in another incarnation when they were both young, and I guess I was too. <laughs>
4: Reverend Jesse Jackson, you're very welcome to the show. But well, the few people resist
2: publicly, he uh, cast a light to live up our pathway. 30 million watched the fight. What? Yes, that's true. Um, I was better known in Africa than I
0: was in it's Ireland. It's unbelievable.
2: He threw a heart trial, I think, at David Beckham <laughs> uh, in the... Is that right?
0: No. So I had this weird thing where I was always the same weight as my age. <laughs> Holy shit, Ken and Murph. it's U.S. Murph. Right the for U.S. Hello, yeah.
4: Murph. he? that's him. Kehos, right? Upstairs at Kios. Kill everyone, but that's yeah. fine. <laughs> oh, oh, my word. My God. Oh. Tell us,
2: talk us through that, Steve. I think we know what's happened, but talk us through it. Oh, just saying. Sig Thorsen is the only... <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: Oh, my God. Is
1: it fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. He
2: was about 12. (laughs) Everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen him. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? No, really. What happened? What happened? It is not war and death and famine It's not that at all It's the opposite of that It's to persuade there's a world outside of that That's why sport's important
3: Well that's pretty much it uh, From us today for the football podcast uh, Listen out for our other show out today Which will include an interview with Lee Keegan mm-hmm. and On the, the cheating controversy That has gripped Gaelic football You know
4: Yeah we, we ma- You managed not to talk to him too much about Jeremy Connolly as well, so for that we should be thankful.
3: Jeremy Connolly, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, there seems to be one rule for Jeremy Connolly, one rule for everyone else based on what I've seen uh, based on what I've seen from the GAA championship over the summer, but yeah. Uh, uh, there will be uh, that chat with Lee and some other stuff, so listen for that. And In the meantime, thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Ken. And thank you, Simon. And thank you for listening and talk to you tomorrow. It's the second time it's done off. They never go home. They never go home. They never
2: go home. Those those boys.